probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to another episode of the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... Alan Sanders. Uh, you can hear me on radio at WBHF. You can also hear me fill in from time to time on the big powerhouse in Atlanta, WSB, and owner of AJS Productions, AJSProductions.com, where I do a little video work myself. Awesome. So... Today, we are talking about minute 38 of The Thing, which begins with the, uh, the explosion happening on the, the screen that they're watching, the Norwegian VHS, and then uh, it ends a minute later with McCready and Norris and Palmer landing in a helicopter out by the, by the UFO site. Well, let's talk about the beginning of the scene first. So uh, we're still in the room and they're watching the video and we do get that, uh, that dimming effect on that uh, explosion that we talked about yesterday. And... You know, they're immediately there's another moment where Benning's kind of to me is trying to deflect them from from doing anything about it, where he tells them that the weather is pretty nasty out there, which um, you know is is a little different from earlier in the movie when they plan on going to the Norwegian base. Benning's is like, uh, I can't condone it myself, but uh, it wouldn't be so bad to fly out there. It only take you about an hour. Like he's much more casual about it the first time than he is here, which again to me, you know, casts some suspicion on him. That's the first thing I was thinking as we're going back and analyzing and looking for these little nuanced moments that we can, whether overtly or we see it ourselves because we just believe it now, uh, the creation of these red herrings. Is this, uh, is this Bennings trying to get us to or get McCready to not go? It's like we've already seen too much. We know too much. And the thing is trying to protect these guys from learning anymore for whatever reasons he would, pre- I mean, he's the thing you could figure he could take everybody over, but whatever he's used to hiding and camouflage and subterfuge and this whole notion of like, try to keep him. Is that why he's doing it? Or is he really worried because everything's been going a little crazy lately? And, you know, McCready's kind of like a heroic character. Anyway, you get the sense these guys look up to him. Maybe he just doesn't want, you know, the, the jock in the room to be gone. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing that you bring up here about McCready that, this is just yet another time when McCready really, really takes charge of the situation, which, you know, if it's kind of funny looking back at it that, you know, he's just the helicopter pilot. And, and then obviously he becomes the hero of the film pretty quickly uh, in that really just that he's kind of the only one that really takes charge in this situation and wants to do something about it. Um, whereas a lot of the other guys are either, you know, just kind of scared or, or they just want to kind of hang back and, and kind of act like nothing's happening. And he's just ready to take it on and, you know, no no questions asked, you know, we're going out there. Yeah, I think at this point he's frustrated because let's face it, he just watched a pretty horrific scene not that long ago in the dog cage, right? I mean, we don't normally see our animals that we bring into our beds and hang out with us at home do what they did. <laughs> so he's like, at the back of his mind, I'm sure he's like, okay, we need to get to the bottom of this. This is, we we need answers. We're not going to get them from the videotapes. We're going to have to go out there and see what the heck were these guys looking at. And it turns out that that was a key moment in ter- in their understanding of what they were up against. Yeah, and to me, it also kind of points to the fact that I think McCready has got a lot more common sense than, uh, or a lot more smarts than than 
a lot of these other guys give him credit for because it seems to me like he's almost starting to figure out what's going on and what the stakes are as well in that you know some of these other guys again like we touched about yesterday they they're they kind of think that the threat is over, that they've, they've killed this dog monster and that's it. But McCready maybe has a sense that, you know, this is not over yet and that they need to do something about it before it gets worse. Well, it reflects that age-old argument about common sense and street smarts versus book smarts. I mean, some of the guys in this room are either milita- ex-military or they're the commander of the base, they're scientists, they're doctors. Uh, but here's a helicopter pilot who by – I'm not saying that that doesn't require intelligence, but you get a sense he's sort of that blue-collar guy. Mm-hmm. But – you get the sense he's got a lot of street smarts. He, he's got a swagger and a savvy from maybe uh, not being in the halls of academia his whole life, but living on this, you know, in, in, in real life. Yeah, he's definitely just got a, kind of that take charge, get it done no matter what attitude, which definitely is, you know, goes along with that kind of street smart kind of thing. But uh, I also actually I forgot to mention this yesterday um, that at the beginning of the scene, we get a little bit more of it, that um, through that whole scene of them watching the video again, there's that wind noise that kind of picks up and, you know, continues to give that sense of isolation and cold and uh, and all that. But also there's the sound. I think it's supposed to be the sound of the VCR itself sounds like it's really quiet. I never noticed it until I was watching with headphones, but it's such a like sci-fi sound. It almost sounds like a UFO drone or something. Um, and it's just another one of those really subtle things, but it adds another sense of kind of what's going on and, and a little adds some tension to it. Cause yeah, um, I didn't, I was trying to figure out what even was making that sound. And then in this minute when they cut the tape off is when you hear it finally stop. So yeah, I thought that was another kind of interesting, subtle sound moment that just adds a little bit to, to what's going on. No, absolutely. And we talked about it before. And I think you're going to talk about how can you not throughout sound plays such it's almost its own character. It's the noise of the thing. It's the noise of the environment. It's the sounds of these individuals in a in a very cramped quarters. The music, I think, is is a perfect blend of both sort of the John Carpenter techno synthesizer, the repeat of the of the percussion. But then you hear typical orchestra instruments coming in, but much more ominous sounding Uh much like, you know, when we hear Jaws, the very simple, duh, duh, you know, this churning as if something is always uh, this, this, this force, this engine is coming at you no matter what you go, whatever you think you can do, or whatever you think you're going to learn, it's still coming. And you still get that sense here in, in a lot of the movie that there's this impending, almost, you know, mechanical thing just lumbering towards you that's eventually going to run you over. Yeah, most definitely. The, the sound does play a huge role in this movie, and going along with that too, the the music does as well. And and this is a, I think this is a minute where it's worth talking about the music because there's this long section in the middle here that I think it's about 18 seconds long where it's just the helicopter flying by. It's almost oddly long how how long they hold that shot, but it gives us a chance to kind of think about what's going on, and it gives a chance for the music to really kind of start coming in and and playing up, you know, the transition to to this scene we're about to see with this UFO when. Obviously, the you start to get a much bigger understanding of what actually is going on. Yeah, when I when I hear this, uh, not only do you hear the chopper as we get into this minute, you hear violins being kind of like that that really rapid back and forth just mm-hmm. to create that screech, and then all of a sudden you hear the underneath like this droning again, almost like a, a that what we associate with Jaws, this like this pulse, but it's 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 ominous. It's like there's something big and scary lumbering or lurking around the corner it's it it plays on our on the highs that match with the sound of the helicopter but then that underlying low and the horns coming in it it creates a really creepy effect yeah that's exactly what i was going to say is yeah the the high strings really kind of blend with the helicopter so that it really kind of subtly comes in and and is 
you know, added to the scene in a way that you might not notice consciously. And then that, that deeper, the deeper strings there too, almost feel to me, that's like the sound of like your stomach dropping. <laughs> like that's <laughs> yeah. what it feels like to me. So it definitely adds that sense of really kind of unnerving foreboding that's going on that they, you know, something, something really eerie is about to happen. So yeah, I love the music in this scene. I think it works really well. Otherwise, I feel like this scene would would feel very, this shot of the helicopter would feel very long, but the music does a good job of kind of, you know, making that time pass and giving you, telling you what kind of what to feel while this is this transition is happening. Yeah, you know what it also does, if we didn't need it already, because we've already had a few aerial shots, but it once again, continuously reminds us there's nothing in the background. You yeah. are alone. There, there are there are no cities, no towers, no power lines. You are alone. Yeah, that's true. These helicopter shots definitely give that kind of sense because, especially because you know the helicopter is like this dark spot in this just completely almost white frame where you can't see anything else. So yeah, definitely again adds to the kind of isolation of what's going on too. So then, as they as they get closer, Norris kind of points out that uh, he thinks he sees sees the site, and then we get this awesome matte painting one one of the earlier one of the early ones in the movie. Here, we, there was one at the beginning of the of the Earth, and then there might have been one somewhere else. I'm, I can't remember, but uh, this is definitely one of the first kind of major matte painting shots in the movie, which are just awesome. Uh, matte, matte painting is something that I really wish was done a lot more in in movies now. I think the effect is is so. It, it just works so much better to me than just, you know, an entirely CGI created world or anything like that. And especially in a movie like this, where the goal is to kind of give you a sense of the uncanny or, or something that's unnatural. I think it even works better in that sense, because, you know, there's something a little, even though it looks extremely realistic, there's something a little off about it that you can't quite put your finger on. So it works really well for, for that as well. Yeah, a lot of people may not realize that you had an Academy Award winning uh, visual effects guy in Albert Whitlock, who, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he, uh, Alfred Hitchcock actually used him on The Birds and used him in several Hitchcock flicks, but also The Hindenburg, where he won a visual effects uh, Oscar in 76, and Earthquake, uh, which was, I think, 74. Um, He also worked on Airport uh, 77. So you got this guy, and someone who's done this for, I mean, he's got so many credits to his name, but Albert Whitlock really showed not only his mastery of matte painting, but even working with the director and the visual effects team on how to properly frame the shots for where he was going to go back and insert those mats. So really good stuff. And we're not talking about, you know, some kid that just came out of, you know, film school, like, or the Rob Bottin who may really cut his teeth on this movie. <laughs> Here's a guy who's been around for, you know, uh, a couple of decades already in Hollywood and working on this. So you, you, weren't, you weren't talking about some fly-by-night guy. This is a guy who knew what he was doing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he was a, a, a consummate legend in the in the field at this point, and was you know kind of the go to guy for this kind of thing. And, and the the paintings that he did for this are just gorgeous. I mean, you have to wonder what what happened to these. I'd love to see see them now hung up somewhere. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know what? And and for people who don't really know what you know, even what a matte painting, what it does for a screen, it's sort of like it blends. A, 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 a realistic and in most times a photorealistic painting over the frame where they may have shot in front of a green screen or a blue screen or they may have shot where they weren't even anywhere close to this location. But when you see it, you think to yourself, how did they do that? Because you think it's a giant crater. It doesn't look fake. It doesn't look drawn. It looks like they're really there. No, definitely not. And and, and this one, this painting, I think the entire, everything we see in the frame is probably the painting. And it's just the camera's just moving to kind of give you the sense of being in that helicopter. But some of the ones that we'll see uh, coming up tomorrow are 
are like you say, where they blend it with the frame, where there's parts of what was actually filmed that are just kind of covered up, and then they expose the matte painting underneath it. So they they blend. I'll have to see if I can find it. I, 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 maybe a month or so ago, um, somebody had posted to Reddit this really great series of they were they had made them into gifs, but it was basically explaining how all these silent movie uh, tricks were done with matte paintings, and it's it's incredible just the the way that they figured out ways to kind of, you know, shoot it in such a way that they can cut out just a little piece of the frame and replace it with this matte painting. And it, you would never know, like you'd never guess in a million years that it wasn't completely real. No. And I, and that's, I think another reason why we talk about how the film stands to this day that we can watch it. A a quick side story about two years ago, um, actually maybe three years ago now, before my first daughter was about to head to college that summer, my two oldest daughters, one was again, uh, getting me, was a graduated senior getting ready to head to UGA. And then I had my incoming senior. So they're only a year apart school wise decided we're going to download a list and we're going to watch the top 100 horror movies of all time. Awesome. And so they were going back through some really bad ones, but whatever. But they finally stumbled up to John Carpenter's The Thing. And I said, okay, I'm watching this with you. And they couldn't believe, because when you start seeing older movies and some of the older horror techniques and camera techniques, it's, it's by today's standards, they're like laughable. They were on the edge of their seats throughout The Thing. And I think it's because visually – Everything was real. Even the matte paintings, you still had real people in front of those mats that were so realistic, you forgot that, that they may have shot this in a studio or shot this outside on a sunny day with a you know rolled white paper for the for, to be replaced by the snow, right? It just it holds up because visually everything is so real. Yeah. And and you know, the other thing I think that goes into that too is that I think the the directors and, and special effects, you know, guys who were really smart about it, they use a lot of different kinds of techniques. You know, it's it's something that I hear um, Christopher Nolan talk about a lot in terms of modern movies and that, you know, in his stuff, he uses a lot of a combination of miniatures and practical uh, full scale effects. And C, like CGI is like the last effort. Like if you can't do anything else, you do CGI. And this movie does that in, in the same kind of way and that it uses matte paintings, which was a very kind of old fashioned technique at this point. But um, uses matte paintings, uses the, the practical kind of puppets and things like that that are used. And then towards the very end of the movie, uses stop motion as well. Um, and, and also uses uh, motion camera, con- motion control cameras at the beginning for the UFO. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of different techniques. And I think that's one of the ways that you can kind of trick an audience, too, is if, if you just use the same thing over and over again, which, you know, in, in modern movies is, is CGI and in some of these uh, in some older horror movies, like you say, uh, that kind of come across laughable. It's because you get used to that effect and you kind of start to see the edges and see you know, how they did it, it it becomes less believable. But when you break it up into a whole bunch of different techniques, you kind of throw the audience off a little bit. And, and, you know, definitely this movie is, that's one of the things that definitely has kept it alive and that, you know, you can watch it now and it still a hundred percent holds up. None of the effects look silly or out of place or, or, you know, or anything like that. It just, it all works perfectly because of that, I think. No, they they did such a good job with whatever tech you know the, where the technology was at that day. I almost am glad that current movies are sort of rediscovering, or at least maybe consciously moving back toward as many practical effects that make sense and let CG be the gap or the fill. 
because sometimes I think movies that overuse the CG, it, you start forgetting that you're watching a movie anymore. You're just like, okay, it's just like a video game. It's sort of like it pulls you out now instead of immersing you, where this movie, I never feel like I'm being pulled out of the story. No, definitely not. Yeah, the, the effects, they might pull you out in the sense that you might like, uh, I, I imagine when people saw this the first time, they probably lost their minds when they saw some of this stuff. So they might have had to remind themselves they were just watching a movie. But yeah, it definitely does not distract you from what's going on at, at any point in the movie. I don't, I don't think there's nothing that, that draws me oh, yeah. out. There, there, I will never, and, and I, I wish I could be in the minute you're talking about it, but no one will ever forget the scene where they try to use the uh, paddles to resuscitate um, Norris on the table. I mean, <laughs> I will never, I was shocked. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then so much is happening. It's like you can't, your brain can't keep up with it because of everything happening. And it's just one of my favorite overall scenes in the entire movie is that moment where you realize every little part wants to survive. Yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a person. I'm usually very quiet when I watch movies. I kind of like to just soak it in. But I, I'm pretty sure I remember myself. You know, yelling or, or being like, "What?" I'm <laughs> watching that scene. Like you, I, I you can't even help yourself because it's just so outrageous. It's and the way they build it up to just that. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't. You have no idea that's coming. <laughs> no, it, it takes you so off guard. And again, I think that works for the whole movie. And even when we're talking about these minutes here, it's about that tension and about, okay, am what I, is, is what I'm seeing real? Am I being diverted? Is it a plant? Is Or is it the, you know, you're constantly second guessing yourself. And just when you're thinking, okay, we know what's happening here. A guy's about to get CPR. <laughs> and all of a sudden, or not CPR, but, uh, you know, the paddles to try to shock the heart. It's the last thing we're expecting is for the chest to cave in. So, you know, this movie does it throughout, constantly playing with our expectations and then playing on our fears and the fact that we really don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. And, and you know, that's something I've brought up a lot as we've gone along. But and we're, we're just getting up to the point where that is starting to change in the movie. But up until this point, you know, we're 38 minutes into the movie and you still really don't necessarily know exactly what's happening here. Like you, you've, you know, just a couple minutes ago, Blair kind of like finally started to get the idea that it's imitating, that it is a creature that's imitating, but you don't really know that it's a uh, an alien or you, you haven't made the connection with that UFO crash in the beginning of the movie. Like right here is the moment where you finally start to understand kind of what's happening, what what the stakes are and what the movie's actually about. Because up to this point, there's just a lot of like kind of very mysterious, vague things that are happening at the camp and nobody really knows what's happening, audience included. And and like you said earlier, even when I watched it the first time, I'm thinking, okay, the reason they're going on and continuing to tell the story is there must be more of them. They're, you think, like you said, uh, they, they, they used the flamethrower in the dog kennel. They killed this thing. They did the autopsy on this thing. Blair found out that it tries to imitate. That's what it was doing. So we're thinking, oh, okay. Now they're heading out to this crash site the first time I'm watching. I'm thinking, crap, there's another one there. That's, what's, that's how the movie's going to keep going. It didn't even occur to me that there are pieces and at the biological and cellular level, because we haven't gotten there yet, that want to survive and take over its host. So you know, I'm watching it thinking, okay, yeah, they killed the one, but what's next? Yeah, that's a great point. I don't, it's it's hard for me to remember the first time I saw it if I had thought about that, but that's a really good point. There's no reason not to think that that's what's going on here. That um, you know, that, that has nothing to do with what's back at the American base, but that they might be actually in danger going to this UFO and or going. They don't know it's a UFO, but going out to this site to find uh, find out where it came from. This, you know, it's one of those things I wish I could watch the movie for the first time again and, and kind of experience it not knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> 
Exactly. Cool. So I think that that will probably wrap us up for this one. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up about minute 38? Nope. Although I will say as we end this minute, I think uh-huh. it's interesting. What an amazing tight shot on the helicopter uh, the, through the windshield, seeing McCready and Norris getting ready to get out. It's so tight. You wonder, was this one of those shots where there was a mat in the background rather than the actual helicopter? But it, it gives us this immediacy that we're getting ready to bridge into the next minute of here are the two main guys like right up in our face with the uh, the divider of the helicopter frame, sort of keeping the two of them separate, yet both right up as tight as you really can get. You don't see much of the background at all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and you can't really see. Yeah, you're right. I never really noticed that. You can't really see what's behind them. It does almost look like it might be a matte painting or something. It also makes me wonder because you know we see in, in a minute that there's not just two guys here. There's three, but you can't see. And I, you know, I, I've never been in a helicopter like this, but you can't see where that other guy is. I guess he's in a. He comes out of a separate door, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, behind him, but wherever he is, he's either completely hidden by the seats or blocked by Norris's large coat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Norris is like this. He's got this kind of a. Uh, uh, I don't even know what you call it. You, you can't see any of him except for his nose. He's, he's completely oh, bundled up. Yeah, well, and the cool thing is that they were very attentive to detail when it comes to being in the Arctic because you can suffer snow blindness. That the the white is so prevalent and mm-hmm. so bright when the sun hits it that if you're out there for hours and hours, you literally can't see anymore when you come inside. It takes your body time to come back. It's called snow blindness. And so these constantly wearing either the shades or the goggles, it's not just about keeping the wind out of their eyes. It's truly to keep their eyes accustomed to the brightness. So a nice little attention to detail as if you really are in the Antarctic. Yeah, most definitely. Cool. So yeah, I think that'll that'll wrap up this one. Make sure that uh, listeners, you check us out in iTunes. So if for some some reason you've uh, you've gotten to this episode and I'm still not subscribed, or you're just listening one by one, I recommend you uh, hit that subscribe button in iTunes. That'll make sure you never miss an episode. But uh, the the podcast is also available through um, Stitcher and Podcast Addict and a couple other platforms as well. So whatever you use, you can definitely find find the podcast. And if you like it, I do recommend that you rate and review it in iTunes. It does make a, a really big difference for a podcast like this, where um, you know. So it's it's kind of can be kind of hard to, to get an audience sometimes. So if you rate and review us, that definitely uh, ups the visibility in iTunes, which is the main platform that most people are going to be finding us. So uh, if you can do that, we'd really appreciate it. But most importantly, don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. (laughs) 